Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message. This morning, I want to start with a story, and I was telling the first service already, you know, sometimes when you listen to any preacher long enough, you start to learn a little bit about their mannerisms, about their, you know, their stories. You hear the stories a couple of times, and you know where they're going with things, and, and I don't want that to happen except that there's a story I want to share today that I know that I've shared already, but I heard we had some first-time visitors here this morning. So, so hopefully it's, it's new, but uh, there's sometimes stories and, and anecdotes. I, I knew that that word was appropriate for this, but I didn't really know what anecdote meant. Um, I don't know if it's an age thing, but an anecdote is a short account of an interesting or humorous incident. Okay, so that's your fun fact for the day, if you didn't know that already. But I was thinking back to this story of when I was about 17 years old. I had gone on a snowboarding trip with some friends, and uh, there were some girls that were present that I think I wanted to impress. I think that's, you know, an important aspect of this story. And we took the lift to the top of the mountain. It was in the Rockies. It was a pretty high mountain. And we got up there, and I was just looking for an opportunity to show off my skills. I was looking for an opportunity to impress the group that we were with, and sooner, uh, no sooner did I look down the mountain and I saw the perfect opportunity. There was a jump a couple hundred yards down the mountain, and I said, that's it. I'm going to go hit that jump. I saw a couple other guys do it. They, they went off it. They made it look easy. I said, how hard could it be? So I got some, some speed behind me. I went down the mountain. I hit the jump, and I launched, and I immediately realized that I did something very, very wrong, that I was in trouble. Because as I floated through the air, I realized I had very much, much misjudged the size of this jump and also kind of overemphasized my own skills. I had only been snowboarding for like a year and a half. But sure enough, I'm in the air, floating through the air, thinking this is not going to end well. And so as I went into the air, my body rotated this way. And if you know anything about snowboarding, if you're 20, 25 feet in the air, even if you don't know anything about snowboarding, you can imagine this is not the way that you want to land. <laughs> Things are not going to go well from that point forward. And sure enough, the ground got closer and closer until impact smacked my tailbone, hurt so bad. But the good news is that the group behind me was behind this massive jump. So all they saw was me taking off into the air. <laughs> So from their vantage point, it was this glorious, you know, jump as I floated through the air, not seeing the other end of it. They came around. They said, that was awesome. I said, yeah, it was, as I was crying in my goggles and they were steaming up. And it, it wasn't until I think a year later on another trip talking to a friend that I realized what I had done wrong. The problem was that my focus was in the wrong place. And it's not just that my focus was on impressing the, the young ladies who were with us. That was the wrong focus. But it was that when I went into the air, the first thing that I saw and the thing that I locked in on was the ground. And I was looking at the ground in fear, and that's exactly where I ended up. And I found out later on that if you are in the air and you need to turn your body, you can try to twist as much as you want. It isn't until you change your focus that you turn your eyes, that your body will actually follow. I realized in this very quickly, in a painful way, that the things that we focus on really, really, and truly matter. That the direction of our focus is going to indicate and it's going to directly affect the direction that our lives are going in. Our focus really matters. And Jesus spoke to this 
He said this in Matthew 6, 21 and 22, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. In other words, be aware of what you focus on because your life will naturally move in the direction of that upon which you focus. The things that we're looking at, the things that we're pursuing in our lives, they matter. They matter as individuals and they certainly matter as a body. They matter in our own lives and in our families, but they also matter in our church. We have to know what we're focused on. We have to know what we're going after, what God has placed in front of us. We have to know that he has a purpose for us. And not just that he has a purpose, but that he also equips us to get from where we are to where he's taking us. In our church, we've had an emphasis over the past couple of months on the fact that we are a church that is in pursuit of his people, his promise, and his power. His people being the people of our church and the people outside of our church. His promise being the word of God and also the words that have been spoken over our lives and into our lives. And his power because we know the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. That the example of the word of God is that we are to be men and women who understand what it is to walk in the power of God. To not just pray for change, but to expect change, to pursue change, and to allow his power to flow through our very lives. So this is the focus of our church, but I also believe that it's really important that we know what we value. What are the things that we value? What are the guardrails that we have set up in our lives and in our church to keep us moving in the direction of our pursuit? And so this morning and over the next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to take the time to go through some of our church values. If anybody has one of our church notebooks, in the beginning of that, in the first couple of pages, our 10 values are listed there. If you don't have a church notebook, we sold out in the first service, but you can go down and ask and put your name on the list and we'll get some more made up. But we'll also have this information available online. But it's so important that we know what it is that we're going after. And so today we're going to look at the first three. And as our framework for this, we're going to use Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. An incredibly powerful passage that I'm sure that most of us know really well, but we're going to look at this and, and what is being said about our pursuit of God. Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 say, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There's so much in these two verses. There are so many messages that we could preach. Jesus being the pioneer, the perfecter, understanding that this comes on the backs of Hebrews 11, the chapter of faith, knowing who the great cloud of witnesses are that are cheering us on, knowing what Jesus did for us. But today, I just want to look at the five words at the beginning of verse 2, which says, fixing 
our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. I would say today that those five words are the most powerful thing that we could really come to the understanding of what they mean because there is no obstacle, no challenge, no hurt, no pain, no history, no, no wrong words spoken over us that is more powerful than our ability to fix our eyes on Jesus. Jesus as the Savior. Jesus as the King. Jesus as the Lord of Lords. Jesus as the one who went to the cross bearing our guilt and our shame and our condemnation and raising again to give us new life. Being seated at the right hand of the Father. Interceding on our behalf. So fixing our eyes on Jesus, this is going to be the framework for our values here today. And so I want to ask a couple of questions as we go through our values, the first three today. The first question is, how does fixing our eyes on Jesus translate into the things that we value? Number two, how does walking in these values cultivate and create an environment for revival, for the move of the Spirit? And what does this look like? And number three, how can we reproduce this culture outside of the church? See, we have to know that these values are not just things that we put on flags on the way up the driveway. They're not just things that we print out or we talk about because we think they're catchy. We have to know what they look like. We have to know what they feel like. We have to know how to expect them. And we have to understand that they are not meant to stay within the four walls of the church. That what God is doing in us and in this body is not meant to just stay here. It is meant to go out and to have an impact on our families, on our workplaces, on the community, on our state, on our nation, and on the world. We have to understand that there is power in what we focus on. And so number one today is something you've probably heard me talk about a few times already, which is that we are a generational body of believers. We believe that God has called us to partner together across the generations to fulfill His purpose for our church. And what we know to be true is that if we do not partner together across the generations, across any of the, the gaps or the divides that may exist in culture, if we don't come together, then we are not going to effectively be able to pursue and accomplish what God has put in front of us. It is going to require all of us. This is another value we'll talk about at, a, at another time, that we are a church of active participation. If you're here, it means that you're a part of this. It means that you have something to bring. It means that God has put something on your life that is meant for others to be able to interact with, to be blessed by, to be influenced by. And it's a very, very important thing that we understand that here today. Do we know that today? I think some of us do. But we're getting there. So, we believe that God has put us together for a reason. And when I decided to really start to speak on this, in the first couple of months of coming on as pastor, we talked about three principles. Number one is that we must honor the past. We have to honor those who have come before us. We have to recognize that we didn't just show up at church today in a building that just magically appeared, that just, it just got planted here yesterday and now we're all here. That, that there is a past, there are men and women who have gone before us that have invested their lives into seeing what God was going to do, taking it from a dream, from a few women gathering together in prayer to where we stand today. 
That there have been men and women who have invested spiritually and physically to make this a reality. We have to honor the past. We have to honor the past in our own lives. Those who have gone before us, those who have set an example for us, an example of faith. It's so important that we don't just think about the present, but that we understand what's taken place in the past. So we honor the past, but then we equip the present. We equip the body of believers to know our identity and then to walk in it. To know who we are and then to do something about it. It's not about just coming to church. It's about being equipped and prepared to go out and to live out what God has placed on your life as an individual, on your family, on the ministry God has called you to, on your friends, your relationships, and basically any place that you have any influence. We have to equip the present, and then we have to empower the future. We have to understand that it's not all about right now. Right now is really what matters at the present, but that we are not just looking at the present, that we are looking to what God wants to do in the future. Somebody had a dream 88 years ago about this church, and here we stand. What are the dreams God has put on our heart today that are going to speak to future generations? And how are we taking the time to invest in and to look at the next generation? How can we invest in them and equip them for what God's bringing them into? Now, this seems like a natural point right now to just throw this out there. We have children's ministry, okay, right down below. Has God called you to be a part of what we're doing as a church to empower the next generation? We have a youth group that takes place on Friday nights. We have a young adults group that happens every other Thursday night. We have a school that is a part of this organization. Has God called you on some level to invest in the next generation? The thing about this value, though, is not just that we are a church that is made up of many generations. That's important. But more so than that, it's that every generation has something to offer. What I, say, what I mean when I say this is that we sincerely believe that if we are going to continually arrive in the places God is bringing us, it's going to require all of us. It's going to require the partnership of the generations. And so the question is, how does fixing our eyes on Jesus show us what it means to partner together in the generations? I'm glad you asked. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 is sometimes the beginning of our Bible reading plans. It's also the chapter that very often for the first, I don't know, 16 or 17 verses, we kind of just, you know, scan through picking up a few key points because it's known as the genealogy of Jesus. I don't know about you. I know there are some in this room that can really like a good genealogy. I know a couple of you, but for the most part, we just read straight through this, right? But there was a significance to why Matthew wrote the genealogy of Jesus. And there's a few reasons. We'll just touch on a couple of them right now. Number one, uh, he was writing to a Jewish audience. He wanted to show the lineage of Jesus. He wanted to show his royal credentials, if you will, coming from Adam through Abraham through King David. He wanted to show that Christ was the one who fulfilled the prophecies in the scriptures. That was number one. Number two, I think he wanted to show us that there are some pretty imperfect people that God will use 
to bring about a result that we never could have imagined through our own ability. If you read through these names and you really take time to look at it, we've got all kinds of scandals, lying, deception. We've got rape. We've got infidelity. We've got, uh, you know, murder. We've got all of these things, prostitution in the lineage of Jesus. And so I just stop here for a moment and I ask the question, if God could use this unruly group of people to bring about the savior of the world, what can he do through you? We look at our past so often, we look at what we've done, where we've come from, what our families have looked like, all the reasons why we're disqualified. But God's saying, I could do anything with anyone, and that includes you. And not only can he, but he's already begun. And that he who has started that good work in you, he's faithful to bring it to completion. That's an exciting word today. The other part of this, though, is that we have to realize that generations really matter to God. That lineage really matters to God. We, as human beings, often see maybe a generation or two before us. Maybe, and hopefully, a couple generations after us. But what does God see? He sees the entire picture. He sees from Adam all the way through the end. He, he knows every person that's going to, to take their breath on earth that are going to live lives. And, and so generations matter to God. He has continued to build on from one generation to another. And he did this until eventually he brought Jesus into the world, but it didn't stop there. That generations, they matter to God. And, and we actually see this in the life of Jesus. So when we look at, uh, let's say, Matthew chapter 17, verse 17, this is one of the first times that Jesus talks about the generations. I just got to be honest, it's not really in glowing terms, though. Matthew 17, 17, one of a few times that he looks out and he says, oh, you faithless and twisted generation, how long am I going to be with you? Right? So, so sometimes when he speaks about the generations, if you do this search, it's not always the most positive thing. But we can see through his ministry that he truly did honor the generations as well because he didn't just come for the generation that was in front of him. He didn't just come for the people who were on earth at that time. He was establishing a kingdom that wasn't just for that time, but that would endure from generation to generation. This is why Gabriel speaks these words to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 33. He says, He... Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. The mission of Jesus wasn't a short-term mission. All the people around him were just expecting him to overthrow Rome. They they were very short-sighted in what he was going to do. But Jesus said, no, 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 this is not just something that's going to burn bright and burn out. This is something that I'm going to establish, and it is going to literally change the world. It's literally going to go forward from this generation to the next and to the next. We see this when he says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 14, just some of a picture of how Jesus looked at this. He said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And it wasn't just the children. We know the trademark of Jesus' ministry was it wasn't the religious elite of the day that he came to empower. It wasn't the who's who, the people of influence, the rich and the powerful. It wasn't just men, even though in that culture, that's all that would have been highlighted. It wasn't just one group of people. It even wasn't just the Jewish people, ultimately. 
It wasn't just the young and it wasn't just the old. It was simply those who were hungry for God. It was those who were able to recognize who and what was standing in front of them. Jesus empowered a generation to be able to reach and to touch the next generation. To be able to equip and empower the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And we are still living in the effects of what Jesus did and what he invested while he was here on earth. So the question I ask today is, what does this look like for us as a church? What this means is that if you are hungry for God in any way, shape, or form, that you have a place here. It means that if you are young or not so young or anywhere in between, what you bring, it matters. What God has put on your life, it matters. It means that if you have a youthful passion to go, whether you're young or old, we want to run alongside of you. It means if you feel like your running days are behind you, we want to stand with you. We want to learn from you. We want to grow. We want to hear from your testimonies and and what God has done in your life. It means that if you are here on the earth right now, and that's a pretty low bar, that God has something for your life that he wants to do in it and through it. Will we be both willing and can we see that this is the truth? Can we recognize what God wants to do in us? We do have to honor those who have gone before us. I always think back to my grandmother in these moments. I've been pretty blessed to have an amazing lineage to walk in. And my grandmother was a huge element of that investing in my life. I want to honor those who have gone before me. We've talked about those who have gone before us in this church. We want to honor that. It it means right now that we also want to invest in the lives of the young people in front of us. It means that we want to honor those who are in this church, who have been here and have served and have walked alongside of so many for so long. It means that we just want to open our eyes to see what God is doing, to take the time to have conversations to take the time to ask about what's your story? Where do you come from? What has God done in your life? And where do you feel like he's bringing you and us? There's a partnership that takes place when we would just open up our eyes to ask the questions that matter. It means that maybe sometimes it's just going out and giving someone a hug. I love doing this. This is one of my favorite things. But can we, can we take the time to look at people around us and to actually see them? Can we take the time to allow the Spirit to lead us into relationships and conversations? We sing the song, Break My Heart for What Breaks Yours. And I hear these words and I'm like, God, I I just, I want that to be true far more often than it is. Because when the person cuts me off in traffic, I am not allowing my heart to be broken for what breaks yours. I want to break them. It's not, but I want to allow his spirit to be the one that is leading me and guiding me. And it's so important that we start here in this church. How do we reproduce this? I think we can easily admit that respect and honor is not something that is always very evident or prevalent in the world around us. Can we begin to be the ones who live this out, to put this on display for the world around us? Can we be the ones who would honor, to be the ones that would love, to be the ones who would, who would look for what Jesus is saying in the moment? I went and saw a movie last night called Jesus Revolution. Has anyone else seen the movie yet? 
Excellent movie. And there's this one scene specifically, if you don't know the story, there's this church, Calvary Chapel. Chuck Smith is the pastor. There's some hippies that come in. They're not wearing shoes. They're a little dirty. I'm sure they're a little smelly. And so you've got all the church members in the film sitting on one side and you've got the hippies sitting on the other side. And so Chuck Smith says, you know what? The door is open. If you're hungry for God, come in those doors. But also, the door works both ways. If you're not happy about what God's doing, well, there's the door. Well, at this point, some of the members get up and they walk out. And there's an elderly gentleman. He stands up and you think he's just going to follow along. But he doesn't. He looks across the aisle, sees where the hippies are sitting, goes and sits with them, puts his arms around them, and says, all right, pastor, let's start church. It's a beautiful picture. It's, it's what we're striving to go after. But it's also something that we have to be willing to do. Let's just step aside from this for a moment. When people walk into our church and they don't uphold all the same values that we do, are we going to be like Jesus? Or are we going to sit as far away as we can? Are we going to be the ones that would display and and put into action what Jesus has called us to do? Are we going to be the ones who are going to love well, regardless of age, regardless of, of gender, regardless of race, regardless of background, regardless of where somebody might be in that moment? Because we know that wherever we are right now, God's bringing us forward. And whoever God brings into these doors, they may be right here, but God has a plan for their lives. Are we going to be the ones who are going to get around them and love them and bring them into the places that God has for them? One, two, three. All right, we got a couple. We got to live this out and we got to bring this into the world around us. Because it's so important as we get to number two. This is, this is something that we believe very deeply in and we're going after. Number two is that we believe deeply in the importance of knowing our identity in Christ. This is something that I really focused in on as a youth pastor. It's something that I'm not getting away from as a, as a lead pastor. Our identity in Christ matters. Not the identity that has been dictated by our past and by our failures. The identity that God has spoken over us. Once again, just just adding on to what we just said, are we willing to seek God's identity for somebody around us through the dysfunction, through the places that, that rub us the wrong way, through the things we don't agree with, are we willing to seek God's identity? Are we willing to speak into that identity? Are we willing to understand, yeah, you've got your stuff, I've got my stuff. But instead of dealing with everything on a surface level, can we recognize that God has a plan and a picture and has spoken a word over their life? Are we going to bring that thing up and out? Or are we going to do what everybody else does? Rub up against the personality and the dysfunction and the insecurities and all that stuff? Or are we going to be men and women who understand the example that Jesus gave to each one of us. We believe deeply in the importance of knowing our identity in Christ. When we know who we've been created to be, we are empowered to walk in obedience to his purpose. Once again, we may be in one spot right now, but God has bigger and better for us. Will we trust 
Will we rely on that? Will we submit ourselves to his purpose and plan for our lives? I want to read just quickly uh, about uh, the disciples in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, because we see this story of, of some men who were, they were very common at the time. Their identity was not as men and women who had great influence or, or men who had, had great stature in the community. They weren't known as the, the spiritual elite of the time. They were common, and one of the studies that I read says that they were actually the commonest of the common. I don't think commonest is a word. But they were the most common. They were the ones that, that really had nothing to show on the outside, but God called them, and they were the ones that were willing to say yes to him. So when we look at Luke six twelve and 13, it says that Jesus came down off the mountain, and he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them. And he named them apostles. You see, these were the ones that didn't have any great identity before Jesus. But when they met Jesus, they were the ones that were humble enough to enter into a life that would both give them everything and require everything of them. It would give them everything. It would give them identity and purpose, but also would be the very thing that would cost them their lives. It was those who had an identity and as fishermen and tax collectors and, and as uh, different uh, doctors and all different things. But, but yet God came through the person of Jesus. He said, this is who you used to be, but I have a new identity for you. And we see as they pick up this identity and they start to walk in this identity that the things were very impossible started to become very possible. That Jesus sends them out. He sends out these 12 ordinary men, sends them out two by two, and he gives them the power. He authorizes them to go out and to heal the sick and to cast out demons. It says this in Mark 6, 7, he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. In Mark six thirteen, they cast out many demons and they anointed with oil many who were sick and they healed them. We see the account when they come back in Luke chapter 9, verse 10. It says, On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and he withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Can I say that there is so much in this verse that is missing? It says that he, they, they came back and they told him all that they had done. I think this sells this story a little bit short. All that they had done. What did they do? They had gone out and they had healed the sick. They had seen blind eyes open and deaf ears open. They had cast out demons. They were walking in the power and the authority of Jesus. These common men, these ordinary men that were nothing to write home about, found their identity in Jesus and began to literally change the world. This is what we pursue in our relationship with God. First relationship with him. We're not going after power or notoriety or any of those things. But as a result of our relationship and submission to God, he starts to use us in ways that we can never imagine. We see when the 70 or the 72 come back from their mission, there's at least some excitement in this verse. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. It says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus said, That's awesome. I saw Satan cast out like, like lightning. But then he goes on to say that you're going to do greater things. That this is just like the tip of the iceberg, that there is more coming. When we find our identity in Jesus, the impossible becomes possible. Sometimes this is not always a good thing, though. Luke chapter 9, verse 54, the disciples get their feelings hurt and they say, Jesus, 
Do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them all? Now, obviously, their hearts were in the wrong place. Jesus corrects them. But can we just look at the fact that they thought it was possible to call down fire from heaven to consume a city? What was it about their identity, their relationship with Jesus that made them think that this was even a possibility? The commonest of the common, the fishermen, the tax collectors, they were the ones that were like, hey, we can just call down fire from heaven, right? We know our power now. Like their identity had changed so dramatically. And it's not just in this way. We look at the story that even Callie shared on last week, where the woman with the alabaster flask comes before Jesus. She breaks it out over Jesus. She anoints his body. And and what, what Callie said last week is that she raised the bar of devotion. She raised the bar of worship in that time. But what was it about Jesus that made her think that that was going to be received well? What was it about his nature? What was it, what was it about who he was and what he had said that brought this out of her? There's something about knowing our identity in Jesus that brings us to places of greater expectation, greater desire, greater hunger, a deeper desire to be used from from Him and by Him. We need to be a church that knows our identity and allows it to penetrate so deeply that our perception, that our focus, that our eyes are so fixed on Jesus that the things would seem impossible actually start to seem like a good idea. This is, this is the church that I want to be in. Yeah, that's impossible. That, that doesn't seem like that's going to work very well, but, but Jesus, is this what you're calling us to do? Are you, are you calling us to do this thing? Because if you are, the answer is yes. I don't care if it costs me everything. The answer is yes. So the question is then, how do we start to reproduce this? See, we don't want this just in church. We want this outside of church. We don't want this just in the four walls. How do we step into a lifestyle with Jesus that so transforms us that people around us start to see it and they want more of it? How do we start to allow this to be something that that impacts us so deeply that everything that we do, everything that, that we do outside of church in our jobs, in our families, in our communities starts to look more like Jesus? When we know our identity in Him, when we know who He's created us to be, we can start to live out lives that look more like our Savior, more like the one who we are called to really and truly be in pursuit of in every area. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to fix our eyes on who He says that we are. Not on the shame, the shortcomings, the failures, the places of hurt, the places of brokenness. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus and start to see the identity that he has for us. Number three, our final one that we're going to look at here today, is that we know that there is power in the gospel of transformation. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Don't be conformed by this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. You are a new creation in Christ. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. So what does this mean and what does this look like? I'm going to be very blunt here today. It means that we no longer have an excuse to live life as crappy humans. 
living life based off of all the stuff and the junk in our past, walking through life with all of the excuses of why I am the way that I am, saying the things that I want to say when I want to say them, going after the things that I want to do when I want to do them because, hey, it's just who I am. No, transformation is where God takes us from where we were and brings us into a new level, brings us into a new place, not through our power, not through our willpower, not through our ability, not through our intellect, but through the power of God, through the Spirit of God living inside of us. You see, I don't get to blame my poor behavior on my past anymore. Christ in me, the hope of glory, isn't just a tagline. Christ in me, the hope of glory, Christ that lives inside of me. There is a new expectation now. I'm not staying where I was. I tried that for long enough. It didn't work. I'm going after something new because I know what Jesus has done for me on the cross. You see, this can't just be in the church either. This has to be in every area and every level of our lives. This means that in our relationships, they have to look differently. It means husbands, we have to act differently towards our wives. It means that we need to treat them the way that God has called us to treat them. Where it says that that we are called to love our wives as Christ loved the church, laying down his very life for her. We are called to live in a new reality of what it means to be a man of God, a husband, a father. Figured at least some of the wives would like that one. But, but, my, my own wife. Absolutely, baby. Remind me of this when I get home. Wives, it means the love and the respect. It means the ability to be the woman that God has called you to be, the mother that God has called you to be. Whatever the identity that God, I can't speak as a wife. I don't know what that life is like. I know I've got the best one, but we we have to know what it is to live out the identity as parents, as, as co-workers, as bosses, as people in the community, people with influence, people with means, people without means, whatever it looks like in our life. Will we be those who know our identity and allow the word and the truth of God to transform us into the men and women that he's called us to be? It means living life with no more excuses. Unfortunately, we live in a world of immature, selfish, underdeveloped, excuse-making victims who blame everything else and don't want to take responsibility for their own actions. This can't be the case in the church anymore. This can't be the, the, the case with us. We, we need to have a, a different level of expectation. And once again, as many times as I say this, I have to say this, it's not through our ability. We do have a part to play but it is through the person of Jesus. It is through knowing who we are in him. We have to fix our eyes on Jesus. Once again, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. See, Jesus, even before the cross, modeled what this transformed life would look like. He put on full display what a life surrendered to God would look like. He walked in power, not just in healing the sick and raising the dead, but in love and forgiveness. He displayed what it was to those who could never earn it on their own. Yes, the story of the alabaster flask, but also the woman who was caught in the midst of adultery and they brought her before Jesus expecting a judgment of some kind and and he leans over and he starts to write in the dirt and one by one, all of the religious leaders, they walk away 
Jesus looks at her and he says, where are your accusers? So I don't see him anymore. He says, well, neither do I. I'm not condemning you either. Go and sin no more. There was a freedom that Jesus brought. There was a freedom that he brought. There was a love. There was a forgiveness that he brought. This is what he exemplified. This is what we are called to walk in. How much more do we get to do this on this side of the cross? And do we accept this for ourselves? So what does this mean for us as a church? It means that we continually need to become those who are transformed by the word of God. It means our thoughts, our beliefs, the things that we've gone to through for security, the message my mom preached the other day about Isaiah 30, understanding the images and the idols and the things that have spoken lies to us that we have, that we have exalted in our lives, that we have put on a pedestal. We need to understand that God wants to come in and to shine his light on those very places to expose them as being false, expose them as being unclean things so that we can step into the identity that God has for us. It means doing the hard work internally so that we can look more like Jesus, so that we can not just live it this way in the church, but that we can bring it to the outside world, that we would be those who know the hope we have in him and the freedom we walk in. I want to ask if our worship team would come up today. We're going to take communion today, and I'm, I'm very, it's, it's been impressed on my heart how significant this is, what we're about to do. There's just something about this season right now where I believe God is wanting to bring healings and transformation in unexpected ways. That He wants to bring freedom at times and places that would be unexpected, that would, that would not even be what we have requested in that moment, but through his word, through worship, through understanding and remembering what Jesus has done for us, that he wants to bring transformation to our very lives. And so we're going to prepare to take communion in a moment, but I, I just wanted to close with this here today. Because yes, we are called to fix our eyes on Jesus, but a very important aspect of this is that we have to remember that Jesus has his eyes fixed on us. John chapter 15, verse 16 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus has his eyes locked on us. We see this in the story of Peter in Luke chapter 22, verses 60 and 61. Peter hasn't done things perfectly. He knew his identity, but yet still, in the moment of trial, he denied Jesus three times. And it says in verse 60 that as he has denied him for the final time, the rooster crows, and he looks over to find Jesus looking at him. Jesus looks at him and locks eyes with him. And, and when we read this through our own prism and our own context, sometimes we might be tempted to think that he was looking at him with eyes of anger with eyes of condemnation of how could you do this to me? But what I believe to be true about this moment in time is that when Jesus looks at Peter, in the midst of the, the worst moment of his life, in the midst of the time where he has denied the Savior of the world, his rabbi, the one who he loves, the one who he is following after, that Jesus is looking at him with eyes of love. That he's looking at him to say, Peter, I see you. 
I know you. I think this is the very thing that allows Peter to come back to a place of redemption after the cross. See, Jesus looks at him, and I believe he was speaking back to his identity. This is not who you are, Peter. This doesn't define you anymore. This, this is not all that you are. I, I believe that in our lives right now that we have to understand that Jesus is looking at us. And he's not looking at us through the prism and the lens of our failures. He's not looking at us through the lens of our past, through our shortcomings, through the brokenness, through the things that have been done to us, through the things that have been said to us. But he's looking at each one of us through the lens of the cross. That through his blood that was shed, his blood speaks a different word. That, that his eyes, when he looks at us, he looks at us through the eyes of a Savior who loves us deeply and intimately, who knows everything about us, and yet chooses to see us as God has created us to be. I believe in this time that as we start to recognize this, as we start to see this, that we would understand what is available for each one of us. We talk about transformation. We talk about redemption and identity. It is only through our ability to understand the love of our Savior, the love of our King, the one who died to give everything for us. Once again, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. For the joy that was set before him, for what he was focused on, for what he was looking at, for what he knew would come out of his death and his resurrection, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the worst of the worst because he saw something in you. Because he knew that through his sacrifice that we would be reunited with our God, with our King, with our Father. This is what is now possible through the person of Jesus. Will we accept it? Will we grab a hold of it? Will we make it real in our lives? Will we be the ones as, as a church that would live this out so that we can have the impact on the community that he has called us to have?